In a moment, the curtain will go up on the... Welcome once more to the supper. All right, physicians. In radio drama, there's... That's right. Now listen to me. We hope you'll listen each week to our new series, Attraction One. Hello and welcome to On the Earwaves, a podcast about the things we hear. My name is Lisa Martine Jenkins. And I'm Emmy Bell. This week we're going to be looking more closely at the evolution of radio, especially as a tool during the Cold War. We're going to be talking with friend and history buff Stephanie Thornton. Steph and I went to UC Berkeley together, where she completed a history thesis whose topic was Radio Free Europe and the Rhetoric of Liberation. Her research has since gotten a lot of attention. It received highest honors and was actually the first ever piece of undergraduate research to be published in the Institute of Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies newsletter. It will also be appearing soon in the Yale Review of International Studies. Steph, would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself outside of the bragging that I've already done on your behalf? Thank you, Lisa. Um, (laughs) My name's Stephanie, and I... Graduated from UC Berkeley, where I wrote um, this piece that Lisa just mentioned, and I'm currently living in San Francisco, and I'm just very interested in the history of radio and the process of archiving radio broadcasts. That's awesome. We're really excited to have you on the show this week. This episode will primarily be our interview with Stephanie about her work, followed as always by our Stuck in Our Heads segment. So, to get started, Stephanie, would you mind starting out with a summary of your work? Basically, how did you end up writing on this topic? What did you discover over the years that you were working on it? Um, And just note to our listeners, we will be posting a link to the original work in the show notes, and we really encourage you all to check it out. Sure, yeah. My paper really began when I was in Prague during the spring of 2014, Um, which was right about the same time as violence was breaking out in the Crimean Peninsula with pro-Russian forces entering Ukraine. And I'm sure you remember reading about the violence and questions um, over the separation movement at that time. And while I was there, I visited the headquarters for Radio Free Europe, which is an international news organization that has been around since 1950 and was originally started through the CIA as a Cold War policy arm to promote American democracy in the Soviet Union and Soviet satellite countries as a way to combat communism. And so I was there visiting and I met some of the journalists who are working currently Um, in countries all across the world. It's 23 countries now, not only in Europe. They also go by Radio Liberty when they're operating out of other countries and became really interested in the way an American radio organization um, has become such a huge worldwide influence. So my paper really focuses on the Cold War origins in the 50s and 60s, and particularly the use of the word liberation and how that reflected the policy of the United States towards the region. I think to give a little bit of background on the climate of the time, the U.S. was experimenting with all sorts of different ways that they wanted to approach the threat of communism in Soviet Union and put out all of these pro-democracy, pro-Western ideals into these countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And Radio Free Europe is super interesting because radios were a new-ish technology at the time and a really new revolutionary way to reach huge masses of people in an intimate setting. I feel like you have talked about this on the show before and it continues to be this day that listening to someone talk really in your home, in your earbuds or when it was on a family radio in your living room really creates this different connection than just reading an article in the newspaper about what's going on in a different country that you're not in or even 
in the city hall that's right down the street from you. Um, and so what I found when I started researching the institution a lot more was that they had laid out this very particular and kind of unaccomplishable goal for itself. And the goal of Radio for Europe in the early 1950s was to try and promote democracy in a way that the people of Soviet satellite states who were resisting communist forces would believe that it was possible for them to be liberated from the Soviet influence. Yet, the other half of that goal was that journalists could absolutely not promise that America would actually back up any attempted use of force in these countries because the U.S. was not planning to go to war in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia, to support any resistance efforts. And so that was incredibly interesting to me as a goal to set out for yourself, that when you really think about that, what's how are you possibly going to accomplish that without there being a ton of misinterpretation, right? And so I just started spending a lot of time in their broadcast archives um, and media institutions with thorough archives in the way that the Radio Free Europe one, which is housed actually at Stanford, um, are really, really amazing things to study because... You have all the internal memos and write-ups of their strategy meetings and policy memos handed down from the U.S. government um, to compare with what actually ends up being said on the air. And there was a lot of interesting channels of communication between what was coming down from the government as, yes, this is what, this is what we want to tell a family that all sits around secretly and listens to the radio in Hungary um, when Radio for Europe gets through. And this is what we want to tell them. But at the same time, you know, this is what President Eisenhower is saying we can really only accomplish, or Kennedy, or whoever it was. Um, so that's kind of what the paper really details. And... But then on kind of a macro level, I was left with a big interest in state-controlled media and even this kind of loose association. Um, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty are no longer part of the CIA, but they're considered a federal agency of the United States. They're controlled by the Broadcasting Board of Governors, um, which is funded by Congress. It's not, they don't receive editorial direction from the United States government, but they are part of a U.S. media enterprise that's operating all around the world. Um, and then apart from that, you know, the State Department runs Twitter accounts, which comes up later in the paper, and countries all across the world have their own you know, TV broadcasts and radio shows. And that's really interesting to me to differentiate in how you would take in that information because it's going to come to you in the same medium as your favorite radio host telling you a story on air on Sunday night. And those same questions are completely still around today for media organizations across the entire world. You have, towards the beginning of the paper, you have this quote about the messy practice of promoting liberation on air, specifically during the era of the Cold War. And you kind of go into why why it is messy, why the practice of promoting liberation as an apparent political ideology or an apparent policy initiative may have been problematic and may have... Um, created some kind of false promises for a lot of the people that were inhabiting the Soviet bloc. So do you want to, obviously this gets, you get into much greater depth in your paper, but would you like to kind of give our listeners just a little, um, 
background on what was going on as far as Soviet-U.S. relations during this time and why in particular promoting liberation on the radio was so potentially messy. Yeah. So liberation itself is a complicated word for a variety of reasons, mainly because I think it has this association and this connotation of an outside force doing the liberation. Does that make sense? Like there's, I talk about self-liberation and that became a term that actually they started to rely on a lot more self-liberation because it didn't promise anything that you that the United States was going to do because a lot of people when you hear liberation are oh I'm going to come liberate you that's me doing the action there right yeah exactly so, it's an active word um the idea that but it's also you know an incredibly emotionally charged powerful war- word that stirs up emotions in people, which is what you want when you're putting together a propagandist campaign. But yeah, just a little history. Um, In 1946, George Kennan, who was an American diplomat, um, sent something that's called the Long Telegram back home to President Truman when he was working in the Soviet Union. And the most famous line from that is world communism is like a malignant parasite which feeds only on diseased tissue. And this is really the first solidified post-World War II document placing the U.S. in opposition of the USSR and that communism and the United States are completely incompatible ideologies in the world. And that we need to take it on to stop this parasite from continuing to spread any further. So then the following year, Kennan, the same person who wrote this long telegram, coined the term containment, which is this idea that you're trying to contain it in certain areas more so than we're going to go in and directly fight it. It was right after World War II. The point was not to start another world war but the point was that we cannot let communism reach anywhere else than it has and then of course it did right and so this the words that we were using in our international conversation had to kind of shift and liberation starts coming up in the late 1940s, early 1950s as a way to kind of extend our support to countries who are in the Soviet sphere and um, also kind of show American citizens this kind of Cold War, we're all in this together, Americans going to defeat communism together um, and we can all do our part to help liberate these people who are being held captive by the Soviet Union. Which is comes up of course later with um, the United States situation with Vietnam which obviously didn't kind of pan out the way that it seems they wanted it to mm-hmm. in <laughs> specifically in Europe. Um, they were kind of focused on this policy of containment and when containment seemed to not be functioning the way that they had hoped it would, they kind of had no choice but to go to war. But I think, I mean, as you mentioned a lot in your paper, they used the radio probably more, I I mean, actually, I don't really know anything about the use of radio in um, Southeast Asia, but it seems that they, in some ways, successfully used soft power in Eastern Europe, just in that we didn't we didn't have a war. There were there they managed to, I don't know, resist the influ- the influence of the Soviet ideology without committing to actual violence. Right. Yeah. They're definitely. Yeah, I mean, and in terms of it being a successful organization that's well-respected for its journalistic work today, 
that's incredibly successful and it's still here. Um, there were certainly missteps in early in the early years, I think I talk about the incident in Hungary in 1956, um, which was an uprising against communist forces. And there were broadcasts from Radio Free Europe operating there that, depending on whose work you're reading, seemed to suggest to the Hungarian people that America was fully backing this uprising. And then a lot of people went out to the streets and were murdered by the Soviet Union, right? Yeah, which is a lot of blood on a radio organization's hands. And so, I mean, of course, those particular broadcasts were denounced and the people who said that were working on their own. And I don't, I definitely do not write in this at all that that was anything planned by anyone high up in the United States, right? But um, is an interesting implication of promoting something that might lead to violence when you're not really ready to step in and support if it does lead there. And which is so fascinating, to me at least, comparing it to the way the media functions today is just the fact that I mean, 50, 60, 70 years ago, you, like, the, a radio broadcast was, like, an incredibly planned thing. And mm-hmm. You had many, many people working behind one broadcast. The kind of, the pace of media was so much slower. So it seems today organizations are constantly publishing things that aren't necessarily true. And then within five minutes tweeting a oh well actually that those weren't the correct numbers and just kind of retracting their earlier statements and it, it like the news cycle is so fast today that a news organization or a radio organization making a mistake is not really that significant of a deal mm-hmm. but it seemed it seems at least in what little I've read about it that radio for Europe was for a lot of people in East Europe their only real access to the United States. And so Radio Free Europe not stating the truth in its broadcasts was akin to the United States doing so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, a lot of people mention that as something that really affected its reputation in the region. And in the years following that, especially during the period of de-Stalinization, which is after Stalin died and Khrushchev replaced him a couple years later, he came out and said a lot of crimes were committed by Stalin. We don't have to align ourselves entirely with all of his policies, you know, and there was removal of the statues of him and this kind of, it was this turn of looking at Soviet history um, right after the events in Hungary. And there were also an opening up of some freedom of the press for local radio stations and local newspapers. So then Radio Free Europe kind of goes through this whole transformation of trying to remain relevant when people have other ways to get their news. So before Radio Free Europe was the only place you could turn to hear about developments that the communist government wouldn't want you to hear about. But once the press had a little bit more freedom in the 60s, right, there were local newspapers that are going to be better informed than someone broadcasting from New York. What I think is super interesting about sort of what happened as uh, other media outlets started to contribute um, more to the spread of information is just sort of like thinking about what it means to be pretty much the only source of news in an area and in going back to the idea of liberation like liberation is is a word that I associate with like freedom and you know uh, empowering the individual to have their own point of view but are they are they really developing their own point of view and combating um, the ideology in their country themselves or are they just doing basically fulfilling someone else's ideology because it's the only one that they're getting any information about. 
what's really fascinating to me about it is that it's it's kind of this kind of it's it's a very cut and dry representation of what I think happens in any media organization and in any society like obviously here it's this is the one news source for all of these different countries and the United States the CIA is funding it and obviously there there might be a conflict of interest but there's also that is also probably the only way that they're going to have access to this kind of news um it's in a very kind of isolated society but I think the exact same thing happens in a much more nuanced and complicated way in the United States today even, because we have tons and tons and tons of news organizations that we can access information from. But, I mean, there's a ton of research that shows that people tend to only read news or only listen to news from people that they already agree with. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, so interesting. And even organizations that seem to be delivering news in an unbiased way when you actually look at the rhetoric of it, which I think you did a wonderful job of looking at the rhetoric of Radio Free Europe in this paper. Um, When you look at the rhetoric of the way news is delivered today, you can say the exact same thing in a way that is strongly negative or strongly positive without it being obviously opinionated. And so I think what's interesting about comparing Cold War Radio to radio or any organization today is just that back then I think everybody knew where they were getting their information and they could choose to they could choose to believe it, they could choose to be um, they could choose whether or not to be critical of it and specifically kind of in the aftermath of the situation in Hungary in 1956, I think people were generally a little bit more critical of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sense of responsibility is really not here today because, you know, I read people's personal blogs. I read sites that content farm lists from a hundred different authors, right? It's not the same sense of one particular media organization has a responsibility to the people of the United States, to the people of Central and Eastern Europe, to be this voice of truth and reason. I don't think anyone thinks of their news in that way anymore especially with things like like twitter and stuff too i think that there are a lot of like wannabe journalists out there putting their their version of the news into the world too so i think that we just we have so many new sources to pull from there's something honestly that and this is me being a total luddite and (laughs) kind of being just nostalgic for the family gathering around the radio days. But I think there is something that is, obviously there's a huge amount that is gained with the enormous amount of information that we have today and the agency that we all have as individuals to kind of pick and choose who we respect and who we want to hear from. But I do think there is something lost as far as a direct connection to a government or a direct connection to another country, because... I think you really you really have to like wade through a lot today to get a sense of a government stance on something. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think very, very, very few people do that. I was actually listening, um, not listening, I was actually reading an article today about, I think it was six in 10 Americans think that we should put troops on the ground in Syria. And I was thinking like, who are these six in ten Americans? Like, who, who is kind of educated enough? What what average American is educated enough on the situation in Syria to really have the kind of I don't know military expertise mm-hmm. to form an opinion on that? Like, I yeah. studied international affairs and I want and I want to go into international reporting and I feel like I don't have an educated enough opinion on the situation because. There are just so many outlets today and so many different ways of accessing information. And I just find it kind of hard to believe that 60% of the country has formed an opinion that they are that confident. (laughs) Yeah, and that kind of, 
I think that probably said something about the nature of those polling questions too. Mm. Like, oh yeah, yeah, because exactly like what you said, I feel like Hillary Clinton doesn't know if we should be in Syria or not. But when yeah, any I feel like Obama doesn't. Call, but when any news site will call you, you get to feel <laughs> like you can say, oh yeah, send in the troops. <laughs> Secretary of State for the afternoon. <laughs> Um, so this actually kind of connects back to something I wanted to mention earlier. Um, would you mind reading this quote about the way that people in Eastern Europe were interpreting the, um, Radio Free Europe broadcasts? Um, I think it's, it's on page 17 for those following along at home. Um, (laughs) Just kind of about the sign. It's just about the kind of the significance of a media agenda and the significance of of media in an era when that was pretty much the only means that people had to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this line um, comes from a letter from Ferdinand Perotka, the Czech journalist who headed up the Radio for Europe Czech desk that I mentioned earlier, and he's writing to. Uh, a Radio Free Europe executive, and he says 95% of the Czechoslovak population believed up to the present in a liberation continued but by war. And what he is trying to tell the Radio Free Europe executive team at this point is that the people in Czechoslovakia, many of whom are his friends and family who are writing to him while he has left and is now living in New York to talk about how they feel about his broadcasts and his representation in Czechoslovakia, are saying that this belief in liberation is really strong and that they think that if for anything less than war, it's going to come, right? And so what I go on to write is that Johnson, who and that's referring to A. Ross Johnson, who wrote... A history of Radio Free Europe after he was head of it for a long time. Um, and in this book, he questions whether or not liberation was official policy actually coming from the U.S. government, but kind of is almost less important if it's official or not, because it was believed to be the policy by those listening to Radio Free Europe in Soviet satellite countries. So in impact, it doesn't really matter if, it was, if this was actually the policy or not, because those who were interpreting radio broadcasts believed that it was the policy, which is the whole idea of this kind of unaccomplishable goal that I mentioned earlier that Radio Free Europe laid out for itself. Yeah, I mean, it just seems that in an era when there is such limited communication, doesn't even really matter whether the communication is necessarily true or if the necess- if the communication is necessarily representing a objective truth it's just kind of this the spirit of the communication and it is what the people choose to believe mm-hmm. yeah on this note um there's another really interesting quote by Perutka that you included um where he said I guess I, I'm not I'm not 100% sure of the context, but he announced basically um, we here are a broadcasting station, not a liberation army. And I thought it was really interesting that he felt like he had to publicly state that. Yeah, that comes from his very first broadcast after the events in Hungary. And so he was famous for this Sunday night broadcast that he gave for many, many years. So this is the Sunday right after the uprising. And that's how he begins it with this declaration that he kind of needs to let... I mean, I feel if you can try and imagine what how you must feel being someone who left the region to work for this news organization that's going to promote freedom and democracy for your friends and family. And now you're hearing back from people 
those broadcasts made me think I should go into the street and, you know, we got shot at, right? And so that's a really important beginning of this turn towards Radio Free Europe turning to self-liberation and straying away from saying things about liberation because they realized that that could not be their goal at all. I feel like it's a really relevant quote to today as well when a lot of movements um, are using media to try to inspire people to join them um, and just sort of like sometimes we really have to take a step back and examine the difference between a broadcasting station and a liberation army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think today in, in many cases they are, I mean, at least in the case of ISIS, in a lot of ways they're one and the same. ISIS's main tactic for recruiting has been like, via social media and via the internet and via their their own broadcasts and the fact that in that case communication and journalism even is kind of has kind of been perverted into this militarized enterprise is really fascinating in light of the situation in Hungary in 1956 so i actually wanted to ask specifically about the end of your paper where you talk about the role of Twitter today and specifically um, the United States's State Department web, uh, State Department Twitter account that is attempting to do some of the same things that Radio Free Europe did in during the Cold War. Um, so do you want to just give kind of a little bit of background on what what that is and what's going on? Sure, yeah. So I just found this campaign and Twitter account called Think Again, Turn Away, which is run by the U.S. State Department, and it is set up to combat this intense ISIS pressure on social media. But it's really kind of, I'm worried to say this even, but some of them, some of their tweets and things that they're putting out just come off very misguided and it's been heavily heavily criticized by news sources if you google it a lot of critical articles will come up um, because of the way that they're using twitter by trying to attack other twitter users who are supporting isis but there's a couple tweets that i included in the paper just because when i found them i I would laugh if it wasn't something that had such dire consequences, um, but it just seemed so out of touch with what is going on in the media and an important way to communicate or combat this threat. Um, for example, they retweet these pictures of ISIS leaders who are wearing Nikes and say things like, I thought ISIS banned Nike. <laughs> like, this person's not credible <laughs> because of that. And, um, you know, or like they post a picture and it's like, oh, this photo is old. You used it already. But this is an official <laughs> State Department crazy project right it's not this is not someone sitting in their I mean it may be someone sitting in their basement but it's connected <laughs> to the U.S. government in the same way that Radio Free Europe was connected to the U.S. government and journalists would say things on air that the government wouldn't completely agree on and you have that tense relationship that you have to deal with and I don't know. To me, it just seems so funny. Like, you're putting something out on the internet as a representative of the U.S. State Department, and you're going to talk about the Nike sneakers? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it just doesn't seem at all in line with the way that the U.S. Mm-hmm. government normally acts on Twitter. Not that, I don't know, I'm incredibly well acquainted with that, but it seems 
at least in my Twitter following, it, it seems that pretty much all that I have seen have been like very official tweets about like an mm-hmm. upcoming speech or a policy or a new law that was passed. It's very, very, it's, it's, it's generally kind of, un- I mean, of course it's biased because it's the U.S. government, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not pretty personal. cut and dry. And so that yeah. just, exactly, it seems like an oddly mm-hmm. personal yeah. and kind of petty yeah. approach. Rita Katz, who's director of an international terrorism research center here, wrote an article that you can find, and I can send the link to that. And the headline is, The State Department's Twitter War with ISIS is Embarrassing, which I feel like pretty much just completely <laughs> sums it up as a yeah. good word choice. It's, it's embarrassing to use our media outlets in this way. Yeah, and I think... This kind of gets back to the question of what makes radio particularly particularly unique, but it seems like that's one of the main differences, is that on the radio, if you say something in a particularly impassioned way, or kind of poke fun at something, or, I don't know, have obviously biased reporting, it sounds a lot more natural because it is coming from someone's voice and you have that element of intimacy and if you're criticizing something it can feel very biting if you're actually listening to their voice but which I think is why Radio Free Europe according to it seems like most people was was a success at least in certain ways but Twitter in 140 characters doesn't have that same quality it's like two sentences and even if it's two sentences of biting criticism it seems kind of odd and out of place and even petty when it's being delivered by a government i think at the same time though like with things like twitter like we let stuff go a lot easier like kind of some like something off like this like we just attribute it to uh you know they're just trying to stay relevant and oh it's just twitter it doesn't matter and mm-hmm. i i guess like this brings up another question for me as well like how how is social media changing like how we consume all media and then is it sort of desensitizing us and do we take media less seriously and i like wonder in comparison to when radio was one of the only sources of content Was it more powerful because we didn't have all this other fluff? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the question of access with that, too. um, I think that all of us would argue that it's good for the world to have more people with the access to write their stories. But it does kind of play down the the importance or respectability level, like what you're saying, like, oh, it's just Twitter. Every person tweets dumb things on the bus in Mm -hmm. the morning and the government's no different. (laughs) John Kerry, he's just like us. If you had a radio show, you were someone of stature, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And now we can all just talk on our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) exactly now we're definitely people of stature (laughs) um so i guess i'll just kind of come to one final question which kind of i think sums up specifically our our interest in this question so are there qualities of audio journalism that make it unique and what about the medium maybe made it more accessible specifically during the the upheaval that was happening during the Cold War? Well, I think the intimacy factor is huge, and I think that continues to be a really big part of why people are attracted to podcasts and radio shows and why we still want to listen to them because we love hearing other people's voices and you kind of get to feel like you're having a conversation but you don't have to put in the effort (laughs) and (laughs) or you're eavesdropping on someone else's conversation and I think that type of relationship that you feel with someone who you listen to for hours and hours 
is really, really intense and important. Um, and so I think as a way at a very tumultuous political time, I'm sure it brought immense comfort to have this reliable voice that you felt was advocating for you on an international stage and you could hear them talk every week and they're talking just to you in your living room with your family at that time. Um, also, I mean, in terms of the Cold War more specifically, radio can't really be censored in the same way print can be. Um, there, radio for Europe had instances of jamming where the government jams the radio waves with alternating frequency sounds that make it unlistenable. But for the most part, Radio Free Europe was able to get through to a lot of radios. And once you're on the air, you can't be censored in real time the same way that, you know, pamphlets and newspapers coming in from other countries are intercepted and blacked out over disagreeable sentences or whatever. Um, so I think that probably led to its popularity as well. I think that I think that the system of using emigrate journalists is really important. That level of trust that comes from people who are from these countries. But really, I would say the intimacy thing is probably the biggest out of all of these. Um, and for today, just continue to make it unique. Awesome. Well, we would love to continue this discussion, but it is probably time for us to move on to our next segment. Thank you so much, Stephanie. This has been fascinating. Listeners, if you have any questions for Stephanie or want to chime in about the use of radio in your country, please email us at ontheearwaves at gmail.com. And as a transition, we're going to play you a clip of the R.E.M. song called Radio Free Europe. That brings us to our final segment, Stuck in Our Heads. Stephanie, since you're sure. a guest, would you like to um, start? I am in the middle of a 10-part series from the podcast, You Must Remember This. It's all about the Manson murders, and it is completely fascinating and addicting. Um, I started listening to it with my family over Thanksgiving, which is a funny choice um, for us to spend our holiday doing, but we all <laughs> loved it, and it's really, really well done, and such a cool look at LA in the 60s um, that I would highly recommend it. I can't stop thinking about it. Wow, I'm going to subscribe right now. Yeah, that sounds yeah, so it's intriguing. Really, really good. And I didn't, I didn't realize how connected he was with a lot of famous people like he was very well established in the music scene they had an incredibly close relationship with people from the beach boys and famous recorded record executives who would come over to the house um before the murders happened so it's very much like someone from a relatively inner circle committing these acts which i Ugh. did not know wow Oh, I'm so excited. So intense. Um, cool. Um, my pick for this week is the new Animal Collective single, Floridada, off the upcoming album Painting With, which is coming out in February. And it came out, the single came out on Monday. 
the November 30th, and we're recording this Sunday, December 5th. I've probably listened to the song already, like, at least 100 times. It's amazing. I'm so excited for the new album. If any of you want to nerd out over Animal Collective with me, please send me an email. Uh, let's listen to the track. up the my pick for this week is the Brett Easton Ellis podcast um Brett Easton Ellis probably a relatively familiar name he's the author who wrote American Psycho and Less Than Zero and he's very interesting um and he had this interview podcast which started out in 2013 which I remember kind of vaguely hearing about at the time but had never really listened to it but the the podcast started out that his first two episodes were a like two hour two part interview with Kanye West, which I have no idea how we organized, but they're really fascinating. I really just am a big Kanye West fan, but I have also never really listened to interviews that are that in depth with him. And it was really fascinating. They got into a lot of really kind of intellectual existential stuff kind of about the creative process and um specifically about the Yeezus album and it just made me kind of appreciate both Brett Easton Ellis and um Kanye West artistry I think and it actually finishes up so that it's like one episode and then a half of the second episode that are all the interview and then the second half of the second episode episode is just Brett Easton Ellis kind of introducing himself also in interview form and he's talking about his own creative process and how he started out writing and his experience with Less Than Zero which he actually published when he was 21 and he was so crazy in college yeah I actually just read that this summer and it's really fascinating that he wrote it at such a young age. Um, so basically, I would really recommend these episodes specifically, but also the Bright Easton Ellis podcast in general. He does an, um, another really great interview with Mark Marin that I also listen to. Um, and not to do two stuck in our heads things, but I just want to kind of direct everyone's attention to this very funny Onion video that was released, I think, a couple days ago. It's like a minute long. I'll just kind of... It, you don't actually even need to watch it because I'm just going to read pretty much everything <laughs> that's on the video right now. So the video is entitled Tips for Creating a Popular Podcast. And it's basically just a bunch of photos with five tips. So the five tips are pay close attention to a podcast you enjoy and put your own inept spin on it. <laughs> Number two, experiment with different microphones until you find one that makes your voice sound the meekest. <laughs> number three shorter formats tend to draw more listeners so limit episodes to 10 action-packed seconds <laughs> which we're clearly not doing very well yeah, on that front. Um, number four always begin with an intro that teases the topic that is already given away by the episode's title <laughs> and number five which is my favorite and also really relevant to what you just mentioned stephanie <laughs> If you don't have time to come up with an original topic, consider solving a previously unsolved murder. <laughs> so I think we should change uh, 
changed the theme of our podcast, Lisa. I know, guys. Coming next week, we're going to take on... Unsolved murders that also have to do with audio? Are there any? Yeah, send in your your recommendations, guys. We need some research (laughs) topics. So... On that note, that concludes this episode of On the Earways. As always, you can find episode information at our website, ontheearways.com, and you can email us at ontheearways at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, SoundCloud, Facebook, and at our personal Twitters. I'm at Lisa underscore M underscore Jenkins, and Emmy is at, at, oh, no, that's <laughs> what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> And Emmy is at the Emmy Awards. Emmy is spelled E-M-I. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and please rate and review us there. It just takes a second and helps us get exposed to more listeners. Stephanie, do you want to tell people where they can find you? Sure. Um, well, thank you so much for having me, Emmy and Lisa. This was fun. Um, if anyone wants to email me, I'd love to get an email. Um, you can send it to Stephanie C. Thornton at gmail.com. A big thank you to Dylan Fitzgibbons for our intro music and to Teo Antrim for our logo. If you'd like to get involved either as a co-host or for an interview like Stephanie's, please email us. We really want to explore all kinds of different audio-related topics, so surprise us with something cool and novel. This show is produced by Lisa and marketed by me. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again to Stephanie for joining us. It's been so good to have you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.